Melt presents The Struggle is Real, where champions from the business of sports and entertainment today lay the foundation for the future changemakers of tomorrow. Welcome to The Struggle is Real, presented by Melt. I'm your host, Adam Schick. While technology has forced sports marketers to change their approach to media buying, there's still something to be said about the power of radio and TV to amplify a brand. On today's show, we'll talk to three people who play critical roles in making these respective industries run. A veteran radio executive in David Dickey, a young television production manager in Thomas Meeson, and a longtime automotive marketing manager that utilizes both mediums in Ashley Lord. To get things started, let's hear from the president of Dickey Broadcasting Company. While talk radio is now part of the fabric of our sports media, it wasn't that long ago that the idea of having a radio station completely devoted to the forum was considered crazy. But David Dickey and his brothers believed that the South was ready for a local spin on a concept popularized in the Northeast. So Dickey Broadcasting launched 680 The Fan and changed Atlanta forever. Melt's Director of Public Relations and Community Affairs, Mark Harmon, and I spoke to David about the rapid changes in the radio business and his hacker tips for success. And he began by going into the pros and cons of running a family business. It's a competitive advantage. Uh, it's, it can be the greatest thing, but it can also be difficult. But I think, it, I think as long as you keep sort of separation of church and state and you understand that, you know, there's the business side of your relationship and there's the non-business side of your relationship, uh, then, then you've got partners in business that you know you can always trust. They'll always be there. And, um, you know, you won't have worries that you might have with somebody else. You had a lot of great advice for our students there at Mill University, but one of them was don't wait to be successful. There's nothing that says that you can't be successful in your 20s right as you get out of school. I just, I'm a big believer in that. It's, you know, the internet has made a lot of um, young people very, very wealthy, even as I said, under the age of 40, and I would even argue under the age of 30, there are more billionaires in the world than in the history of mankind. And it's not all just technology. And uh, these are people that had a plan followed, you know, had a passion for something and, and wanted to be, whether you call it a disruptor, they had an idea. They followed it with a great deal of passion. You've got to be lucky. There's no doubt about it. And, but I also think you can make your own luck. And, and hard work and preparation puts you in a position to not only be successful, but be lucky. And people that tend to not work hard or not put themselves in, in the right position tend to uh, blame others or, or blame bad luck. And bad luck happens. We all know that. But I think a lot of that can be uh, uh, mitigated, if not eliminated, uh, by just uh, just being overly prepared. You spoke about your family's history in the radio business going back a long, long time before most of the other giants in the business today. Sure. As you and your brothers took over the business and inherited that, that family trade, how did you honor the past while also move the company forward and evolve with the times? Good question. I mean, you know, look, I'm a radio guy through and through. And, and while our industry has changed dramatically through regulation, starting in 93 and then complete deregulation in 96, and then the public markets got into it, that really was transformative for our business. And you can argue good things about that. And you can certainly argue bad things about that. Uh, 
But yet, for me, fundamentally, radio, has it, its core has not changed. It's local people serving local people, uh, local content, local relationships. And, you know, we're up against some of the biggest broadcasters in America, here in Atlanta, being a top 10 market. And I think we hold our own pretty well, being a family-owned private company. We do because I think we're just more focused than everybody else. We're focused on local relationships. We're focused on local content, uh, local local listeners, local businesses, local teams, and um, and we make our decisions locally. I don't have to ask New York if I can make an investment. I don't have to ask New York if uh, if we can try to uh, create an alliance with the University of Georgia or Georgia Tech or the Atlanta Braves. Uh, if we feel it's beneficial to our platform and and our our current partnerships then I'm going to pick up the phone and call, you know, Greg McGarity or Todd Stansberry or, you know, Derek Schiller and say, let's do a deal. And we've been able to do that. So, um, but yet we still embrace what has made radio uh, uh, historically a a part of the fabric of America, which again is reporting on local people, local events. And we still do that while we try to compete in sort of a, a digital world. One of the teams you partner with are the Atlanta Braves, the Absolutely. first place that Atlanta Braves, as we're talking right now. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the fact that you've got a long-term deal with them, longer mm-hmm. than most company sure. broadcast companies have. I mean, a very long-term commitment. Yeah. Plus, you're out there at SunTrust Park. Your studios are there. We are. Where the Braves studios are. We are. That's been, a, um, in many ways, a transformative deal. We, we built the fan long before we had our first play-by-play relationship. And a large part of that was really done on purpose because we wanted to create our own identity with our own content before we embraced a, a college or a university or a, um, you know, the Institute or, or the Braves or the Thrashers or the Hawks. And we've worked with them all over the years uh, because ultimately, unless you own the team, you don't control your destiny. And, and so we felt that if we could build a, a brand independent of any a college level or you know, professional level of franchise, then uh, there would be a time in our future where then we could plug that partnership into sort of uh, into our menu. And, and do it that, and in a way that becomes accretive to our brand, not doesn't supplant our brand. And, uh, and that if the relationship doesn't last forever, well, that's okay because we've already created our own identity, our own reputation, our own brand. And, uh, and it's, you know, those things can come and go. Uh, I'm proud that, you know, the relationship we've created with the, with the Atlanta Braves, uh, it was after many years of discussion. And, you know, that business has changed uh, play by play and, and, and the radio business has changed. So it sort of set the stage for all the planets came into alignment for the Braves to embrace sort of our philosophy and how to go about doing this, which was really to integrate the team into what we do and integrate what we do into the team in a way that I don't think the Braves had done before um, versus the old rights fee model. And so where the Braves are engaged in radio, which is a very important marketing and communication vehicle for uh, that sport, especially baseball. And they now, I think, have a better understanding of, of, of what radio is all about, the difficulties we face every day, and ultimately how radio play-by-play and the commercials in the, in the games really can be a, 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 very, a great benefit to all the Brave sponsors. So I think you have a, we have a more informed consumer of radio today in the Atlanta Braves. It certainly allows us to get closer to what they do as an operation. And uh, and we share a lot of information, and you know we're each a phone call away from asking for help on on a new initiative. And they've always had our back, and we certainly have have always had, and we'll always have their back. 
There have been a lot of competitors in your industry in this market over the years after you guys helped open the category. Some have gone, some have come. What separates you? What do you feel like you have to continue to do to separate yourself from the local competition? You know, it's a good question. I think a couple of things. One, uh, we've been fortunate to be able to do this without debt. And like any business or any consumer situation, you know, debt can be very disruptive, uh, if not completely tank the whole thing. And uh, and without having a mortgage and the worry of a mortgage, and quite frankly, without having the worry of uh, stockholders, you know, shareholders, and and having to uh, satisfy the analysts on Wall Street, we've been able to really focus not only short term, but long term at the same time. We're only as good as how we execute today in terms of our shows, our business relationships, our play-by-play relationships. But, it's, but while the focus is absolutely on doing our best today, we continue to make plans and invest in people, equipment, partnerships, technology for six months from now, six years from now. And that allows us to already be you know, knee-deep in, in, to, in an initiative uh, before you know, the competitive landscape really starts to think about it. Because quite frankly, uh, they either were suffocating from debt or, and or uh, you know, Wall Street would not allow them to look you know, beyond 30 days, 90 days at the most. We don't have those shackles, and so we're able to really do what we want to do on our time frame with a, an investment uh, window uh, to, to fit whatever challenges we face, whether it be, you know, uh, you know, the rest of 2018 or where, what are we going to be and what, and who are we going to hire and, and what, what programming are we going to, going to be in when the, the clock strikes, uh, 2021. You told the students at Bell University that sports talk as a genre came out in the late 1980s. Correct. You guys were on board in 1993. Has it surprised you how it's grown so much? Because it now has. it's not just one sports talk radio station in most major cities. Yeah. There's two or three. Yes. It, well, the business of sports has changed dramatically. When we launched the fan in 93, about six years after the original big market, FAN, in New York, when they launched, and yet uh, the FAN in New York is without a doubt, one of the most successful sports talks in, in the country in the history of uh, sports radio. And yet when they were getting ready to launch, the market thought they were crazy for putting using a signal to talk sports 24 hours a day. Even though ESPN was already a great success, uh, to do it on radio, uh, the, the New York, a great sports town, thought they were crazy for talking sports 24 hours a day. When we did it, and with a Southern flair and certainly a bigger focus on college football and the local teams, we knew that, you know, look, the Braves had gone worst to first. The Braves were doing better, and you had that rotation and Bobby, and, you know, the future was bright for the Braves. We were getting the Olympics. I think we were about to, you know, host a Super Bowl and, uh, and a number of things taking place. Uh, Tech was coming off a championship in 1990. So there was a lot going on in the city of Atlanta around sports. But the business of sports and the business community's embrace of sports and as a marketing vehicle and as a marketing genre, I don't think anybody could have predicted that. And I think we've been fortunate enough to be able to stay in our lane and grow with the genre and with the business of sports. And we've just always had an eye on how do we innovate, how do we keep the content fresh uh, in order to stay relevant. And ultimately, um, um, I think we've, while well, we've made mistakes, and not everything, nobody bats a thousand, I think we've, uh, we've been able to, as I said, grow with the genre and find ourselves in, uh, with new forms of distribution and the, without debt have, and without Wall Street, having the ability to invest in people and content and shows, even if we felt it, it wouldn't pay dividends for months or even years, 
Uh, again, Wall Street wouldn't allow us to do that. Shareholders wouldn't allow us to do it. But it's our own money and it's our own vision. And, and we've been fortunate enough to be able to follow our passion and our, our goals. The company has been, obviously, for years heavily leveraged in terrestrial radio, in magazines, as well as you talked about yes. with the students. How do you grow from that into this new digital world, into what we're doing right now, podcasts? How do you take what you're creating content-wise and make sure that it's reaching the right people on different platforms? Well, I, it's a great question. And I think, you know, I struggled with podcasts for a long time because <clears throat> not being the sharpest knife in the drawer, I try to figure out what is a podcast? And, you know, it's play on demand, programming on demand, however you want to define it. But, but you know, and it, it finally hit me one day, a lot later than most people, you know, it's just a radio show. It's just a radio show that we're not just broadcasting, distributing live. It's a radio show that we're, we're sticking on a hard drive somewhere and then somebody can download it at their option mm-hmm. uh, on their time frame. And watching my kids consume not network TV, especially my daughter, but download a show and watch it on a, on a laptop or an iPad, you know, in whatever corner of the house, whenever she wanted to, it hit me that it's, that's still a TV show. Mm-hmm. Whether it's a current show or it goes back to friends or, you know, something way, way in the past that the young kids will watch today and binge watch. Uh, it's just a, it's content that they now are consuming at their convenience on a device that is, you know, comfortable for them. They're no longer going to a room where there's a TV on the wall or on a, on a, on a cabinet, but they're, mm-hmm. they're doing it in the comfort of their bedroom, you know, in the corner sitting on the floor. And I thought, well, it's really about content. The technology allows for alternate forms of distribution rather than just amplitude modulation and frequency modulation. And that's okay because the content's out there. We've invested in a great infrastructure at the battery, so we have all of the infrastructure and, and state-of-the-art stuff. But what we're really good at, what we've done for generations, and in this town for over a quarter of a century, is we've created content. So I said, we're already doing that. And we have the people and the credible hosts and, and former players and coaches and, uh, and access to current players and coaches and, and, and people in the media that uh, allow us to create great, local, credible content every day. We make hundreds and hundreds, 100 plus hours a week of local sports content. And with the launch of the SportsX at 106.3 and, and 12.30 a.m., you know, we're, gonna, we're ultimately doubling that to over 200 hours a week of, you know, primetime local sports content. So we can, we can distribute that live, AM and FM, and through your iPhone app and, you know, desktop and streaming. But all of that then can be, if you will, put to the hard drive and then and cut up in, in a podcast form or what we're doing here mm-hmm. and saying, okay, let's take a condensed version of your speech and talk for 10 minutes about you know, some of the highlights uh, and do this in a digestible fashion that somebody can then download because they couldn't be here or the time didn't work out. And, uh, uh, but yet we want, them to comp- you know, we want them to consume the content. You've hired a lot of people in your career. I have. The young people at uh, Mellet University, what's some advice you would give to them as they try to get their foot in their door, as they try to kick off their career, as they try to get things underway? Uh, again, I think if you're, if you're going to meet somebody, be early. Look somebody in the eye, shake their hand firmly, and, then, and, and don't check your phone during an interview. <laughs> uh, and after the fact, then uh, write a thank you note. Right, take four minutes out of your life to on a on a nice piece of stationery. If you don't have any, you can go to an office supply store, or st- you know, company or a local a local boutique store, buy some stationery or get it online, and uh, and then write a note. And and I, it's amazing what that would do because that's not done a lot today. And I I also, if you're sending a resume out 
then you've got to be a little bit creative because there are a lot of bright people out there and there are a lot of people that will kind of the herd or sheep mentality and do the same thing and send the same resume the same way um, and then get in line. I've always felt that I never wanted my resume in a stack of 200 resumes. Um, I needed to do something differently myself and my advice to anybody else is, you know, figure out a way to get that resume to somebody's, the right person's desk because you never want to spend time with somebody that can't say yes. And unfortunately, whether it's in sales or job hunting or anything, you, you, m most people waste a lot of time with people that can only say no and can never say yes because they don't have the authority. And so how do you get to that man or woman that has the authority to say yes, in this case, to hire you? Well, you know what the gatekeeper or the receptionist or the executive assistant, you know what he or she doesn't open, in my opinion, a, a UPS or FedEx envelope. That is always put on somebody's chair and uh, or desk. And when that man or woman gets back to their desk, they will open their own FedEx or UPS envelope. So spend 12 bucks of your, of your hard-earned money, invest $12 in your future, put your resume in a, in a UPS or FedEx overnight, and send it to the man or woman that runs or owns the company. In my opinion, eight, nine out of 10 times, they will open that FedEx envelope. Most of the time, they will not see that stack of 200 resumes because it'll be weeded out by other people that cannot say yes, but can only say no. And they say no by throwing your resume out or giving you a form uh, rejection letter. So send a, an overnight package or, or, or even postal service, but send an overnight package to, to, to the, the man or woman in charge. It'll likely reach their desk unopened, and he or she has to open it, and they will physically touch your resume, which there's very little if no chance that they will t physically touch your resume if you send it in the mail or email it. And, and uh, if you want to do that, do that. But I would still then s spend 14 bucks on my own and send my resume to the person in charge and the person who can say yes. Well, David, for someone who did not know what a podcast was and couldn't wrap their head around it for a while, you've done a very, very solid job on this podcast. So thank you very much. I've got a face for radio. <laughs>
you know, uh, genes kind of kicked off at an early age. So I kind of always knew I was going to do something along the line of selling or advertising or that sort of thing or promoting. And, and of course, entertainment uh, is really a big part of a car business. Uh, with auto shows, uh, with bringing out a new vehicle, and when doing uh, uh, activations like a Melt does for us, you know, we're kind of putting our uh, ourself out there and the product uh, in front of people, and you want to make a good impression. And, you know, that first impression better be good, mm-hmm. or you don't get a chance to make the second impression. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all industries are very competitive. The automotive industry may be the most competitive at all. Yeah. What, how do you go about marketing your Kia brand mm-hmm. to get – the consumers that you want. Yeah, I think primarily we, we look at our car as being a fun and exciting uh, product. Uh, in the later years, uh, we, we've brought in uh, better styling. When we when we got Peter Schreier on as our head uh, design engineer, he kind of took our car to a new level. <laughs> Originally, we were just uh, basically get-me-done type car, very uh, efficient car. Well, the first little car we had was a Sophia, very basic-looking sedan, looked like all the other sedans. But now I think with our new look, uh, we have a kind of a wedge look to our cars. We have the Tiger grill, very unique to the product. And now we're looking at even getting in performance with the Stinger and some of the other cars. So uh, obviously it's it's a brand preference for any uh, consumer. Uh, if you can make your cars attractive and affordable and efficient, uh, it's, it's a matter of bringing the brand uh, up and uh, keeping it and being competitive with the other brands that, you know, we can compete. Obviously, we can because we've got these J.D. Power Awards recently that's really catapulted the brand up to a new level that we didn't have, uh, you know, 20 years ago. You know, we are the newest car company in the United States. It's hard to believe, but we've been here 20, you know, 23, almost, I guess, 24 years. Uh, So we are the newest car company. So uh, we have a lot to earn that position we have, and uh, mainly it's the quality. And particularly having the plant here, uh, the plant uh, basically has a... uh, a goal of zero defects, and that's mainly the two cars I make down there, Optima and Sorento, and those cars have all gotten, you know, J.D. Power awards. So, you know, it's a commitment from the very beginning, from manufacturing the vehicle to promoting the vehicle, advertising the vehicle, and also our dealers. Very important that our dealers uh, have a very good reputation. Uh, we very, we get a new dealer, we make sure that they are qualified, have a good reputation, a good CSI, they treat customers well. That's a real challenge for us to make sure we have uh, the right dealers selling our product. Over 40 years in the business, and you're with Ford, you're with Hyundai, now you're obviously with Kia. Can you talk about the way that marketing in the automotive industry has changed over the course of your career? Oh, absolutely. I think it's become a lot more uh, technical. Consumers are much more educated now. Uh, uh, Years ago, it was very simple advertising. You know, we had broadcast and radio, print. Now, with the digital age coming in, uh, we're, we're spending a lot more money on digital. Our dealers are. Like I mentioned in my presentation, the new showroom is is a dealer's website. Mm-hmm. And ours, too. Uh, you go to Kia.com, you're going to see all the information on the products. Consumers are not visiting dealerships, uh, showrooms uh, as frequently as they were before. So technology has driven us to a new level. And we have some different ways, social media, Obviously, Facebook, uh, particularly uh, search with Google, and uh, this has changed everybody's business, and not just necessarily the car business. It's affected us all. You talked to 33 uh, members of Melt University today, 33 young sports marketers. What advice would you give them about getting into the business? Oh, the car business particularly? Oh, 
Yeah, it's a very challenging business. Uh, I would say they got, they'd have to have a lot. First of all, you got to have a lot of energy. You want to really be able to uh, communicate very well. I know when I was at Ford starting out, uh, the dealers, I, I had a lot of kind of experience. When I finally started calling on dealers, I had worked for the company a number of years in spine distribution. So I had a lot more knowledge. Uh, I know the, the dealers dealerships and dealer general managers really appreciate when we send somebody out that's very well educated, that's been trained so well, they can answer questions uh, on the spot. It's very important to have a good reputation when you're the direct contact with the dealerships that you have the answer, you know the programs. We have you know incentive programs, we have incentive programs for uh, consumers, for the dealers, for the salespeople, sales consultants. Our programs are constantly changing, so our DSMs have to really be on their game. They have to constantly uh, be aware of the programs, how to solve problems with the dealer. We're, we're mainly consultants to the dealers. Uh, once they take our um, brand on, uh, we want the dealer to be profitable. Uh, our our uh, people are, are trained, on, you know, obviously, on financial statement uh, interpretation, but also uh, giving good advice to the dealer. If you've got a problem dealer, how do you help him sell more cars? So it's very important that you establish a good relationship and know the business. Uh, it takes a while. The car business is a is, is a tough business. I can tell you that from being in it as long as I have and, and survived. You know, uh, but it's a very rewarding uh, to be able to uh, to make your your forecast every month. That's a big thing for us now. We we uh, stress to our people uh, they have to give us a good forecast that determines how we need to set up our production uh, as we sell our cars and uh, particular models too. So. Uh, that's where it all is now. In terms of personal challenges, I think there's so much that people can learn from what you've been through and things that you've tried to overcome. So professionally, mm-hmm. what's been your greatest challenge that you've had to overcome and, and how did you do that? Oh, I would say it was, is uh, learning uh, Excel spreadsheets and keeping up with technology. Uh, you know, years ago, we had a secretary that typed all our letters for us and we just had Really, you didn't. If you could type, uh, I know I learned how to type in in high school, so I was able to type my contact reports and all that. And finally, I got an electric typewriter. Now with a computer, you know, you can type, uh, you can communicate so much well. You can be with Word, with uh, you know PowerPoint. Uh, it's very important that you be able to use whatever technology is available to you to communicate and to uh, to make a good impression. Obviously, uh, it, it made a difference for me being able to. Uh, to type and to uh, uh, have my contact reports done very neatly and also uh, be able to write letters. Key is very involved in sports marketing with the NBA, with the Chick-fil-A kickoff classic and the and the Peach Bowl. Talk about why Kia decides to use sports marketing to get the brand out there. Oh, yeah. Well, sports is, is, is the best medium because you think about it. People are there to have fun. They're there. They're, they're doing something they love the most. And if you're there with them, they, they associate you with that experience, with going to a basketball game, with going to a football game, baseball. They, they see you. your brand is involved. It, it's 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 not it's not uh, intrusive. You kind of fit in with it. So if you can tie that in, that's why we've always, particularly in our region, uh, Percy and I have always had that philosophy that if we can tie ourselves. Very beginning with uh, us, we got involved with the Braves. Well, here with the, the Falcons was a really good uh, association. At one time, we actually spo- had a sponsorship with every professional team here, even the Atlanta Dream. We had a uh, sponsorship with them. So we, we know that sports is, is a good association. And you see that with, with all, obviously, a lot of other companies, too. It's just it's, it's the best medium, we think, to, co- to communicate with people and to identify with them 
and to uh, to be there when they're having fun. The automotive business continues to change rapidly, especially with electric cars. I know that during the presentation, Mark asked when he was going to get a flying car, and the answer was <laughs> we're not sure yet. But the, the way that things are changing, how do you keep up with those changes, especially mm-hmm. with all the infrastructure you have and the investment in old school mm-hmm. cars, so to speak? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, there's no monopoly on uh, technology today. It's, we kind of reach parity. Almost every car company has the same technology. We usually get it from our vendors, really. Uh, that's where it comes. The vendors come to you and say, hey, this is what we come up with. This is the latest technology and whatever. Uh, I remember I was a Ford and we finally come up with intermittent wipers. And that was a big move, you know. That was actually developed by an optometrist, I believe, or an ophthalmologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, th- there's parity with technology. So now, really, uh, just about every car company, uh, depending on how much you can invest in a vehicle, you see what vehicles have in the day. Backup camera, navigation, GPS, all these things. In fact, some of it's going to come to a point to where, and also uh, with, with cell phones and all, uh, uh, there's a lot of distractions you can get involved with. Even missing, you know, uh, you can't even put an address in your GPS now. We've made that so you have to have the car parked and then parked uh, to, uh, get a, to put a new address in. So uh, th- these are things that uh, all companies have access to. Uh, so the real difference is is mainly uh, promoting your brand uh, to the point where you you're put on a person's shopping list uh, because they think your brand has everything they want and, and plus the quality is is built in too. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I think everybody has that opportunity to access the technology that's coming and it's coming fast. You know, it really is. If you can look at what's happened in the, just the last ten years sure. with uh, that. Ashley, thank you so much for sharing your insights in the business and uh, helping people understand that the automotive industry, another way they can get involved in sports and entertainment. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. While many of our subjects in this show have been established players in their respective fields or retired former stars, Thomas Meeson is a newcomer who is recently in the same position as many of the Melt You interns we've featured. A 2018 Alabama graduate, Meeson began working for CBS Sports on campus at the start of his college career and hasn't stopped, serving as a real testament to the opportunities that are all around you, even when you're still in school. Mark and I caught up with Thomas to find out more about his rapid rise in sports television, and he began by explaining how he balanced school with a nearly full-time travel position. So after my sophomore year, I was promoted to production coordinator for the SEC. So that was kind of a full-time travel position. So I was thinking to myself, how am I going to do this with school? You know, finish in four years. I had no clue I was going to finish in four years. <laughs> um, so I kind of went through that. I scheduled all online classes for the fall. And I was able to, you know, travel Tuesday or Wednesday, fly out, drive wherever I needed to go, and uh, work Wednesday through Sunday, pretty much. I was working all day, coming home at night in my hotel room, and just kind of grinding on my school, doing what I needed to do. And uh, it was kind of it worked out, you know. I was lucky enough to kind of have enough experience in the film world and my other core curriculars, and kind of do my best I could on the road. When you were trying to figure out what the balance was between work and school. Where did that directive come from? Was it maybe professors that said you should go get as much real-world experience as possible? Did you take that on your own? Did it come from other mentors? What gave you the drive to say, I'm going to go all in on this opportunity to get work experience, and if school has to come after that, then then so be it? Well, yeah, I really just found my mentor. You know, Vince was a great guy to look up to. He was just telling me to work as many events as I could. 
one of my other bosses that first hired me was, you know, just kept pushing me on, kept pushing me on, sending my name out to be hired for other events. So that was kind of just the main thing was finding that right mentor that wanted to push me on and wanted me to, you know, still have that balance between school and work. You know, I've been in the broadcasting business for 30 years at one stretch of the time. You were the ultimate freelancer as you're getting started. Talk about the networking that goes along and how you meet people, how you keep in touch with people, and how you keep your name in front of them. And they're thinking like, hey, I need this guy for this event. You know, I'm calling you. Yeah, so, you know, we're working the biggest SEC games in the, of the, the week, pretty much, biggest college game. And we're always going to have those special visitors, you know, people from New York and other executives. So that was kind of a chance to, in my job, I could connect with them personally just from you know, situations we were in, where we were going, eating dinner and whatnot, just putting my name out there, networking, telling them what I really wanted to do, tell them I was still in school, they saw that I was working. Um, so I think that's what really pushed me to you know, just really get my name out there as much as possible. I was still doing stuff with my own video work, um, sending that out to as many people as possible. So really just the advice would be to you know never give up, always email people, um, always network. It's important to network. It's important to meet as many people as possible. But that doesn't mean that, especially when you're young, you're not going to make mistakes. And you told a story in there that I thought was, was pretty enlightening, which is sometimes you need someone to correct you and say, hey, you're doing this this way. You need to make an adjustment. Can you tell that story about one of your early attempts to email an executive? Yeah. So my, my first, this is my first email out of high school to really apply for a real job. I'd never really had a, a job like this. And uh, I emailed... Craig Silver, our, our producer for the show, and he kind of passed my name off to Noah Spangler. He's our production manager at the time. Um, and so he replied to my email that I replied that I sent to Craig, and he kind of just ripped me apart of, you know, every little detail, certain space here. And so that kind of really taught me um, to not really give up. But, you know, he gave me that chance over and over, and he kind of saw that you know, I wanted wanted that drive and wanted to keep working. So I think uh, making those mistakes is sometimes good in, in your life just to kind of push you a little further. Well, Thomas, thank you so much. And there's a lot of young people who can recognize your experience. They'll relate to it and hopefully they learn from it as well. Yeah. Thank you all for having me out here. And that's going to do it for this week's show. We're now available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud, so be sure to subscribe on the app of your choice and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Until next week, I'm Adam Schick. Thanks for joining us for The Struggle is Real, presented by Melt.